Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when he arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, so that we who have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. On the cross, Jesus' last words in the Gospel of John were, It is finished. It is finished. Now, in English, when we say something is finished, we mean usually one of two things. We mean it is completed or it is depleted. Take a, a cherry pie, for example. You, you want to make a cherry pie, so first you make a crust with a lard or shortening or butter, whatever your choice. Or maybe you go buy a crust from the grocery store. That's what my aunt taught me to do. And then you, you pick some cherries. Uh, maybe you want to pick some cherries uh, tomorrow, for example. The season is starting for sweet cherries in our area, so go ahead and pick some. And then you make a filling, yeah, sugar, cornstarch, flour, whatever you use. And then you put the lattice or the crumb crop, uh, topping on top. And then you stick it in the oven and you bake it at 425 for 15 minutes and then lower the temperature and put the foil around the edge for another uh, 30, uh, 45 minutes until it's done. You let it cool. And it is finished. The pie is ready to eat. It is completed. Now, on the other hand, there's the pie after you cut into it. You cut into it. You take a slice. You eat it. Maybe you have a second slice. Maybe a, a third slice for your neighbor across the street. And suddenly the pie is gone. It is finished. That, that pie has gone from being finished, completed, to being finished, depleted. It is a good pie. Now, before I make you more hungry, let's move on to the, the nub of the scripture here. It says, Paul is talking about something that is finished and completed. Uh, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It's one of the most famous verses of the Bible. Maybe you've memorized it at some point. Maybe it sounds a little bit familiar. 
Maybe you have it in needlepoint on your wall. What Christ did on the cross is finished. It's completed. It's whole. It's done. That's what the word in Greek there means. But how often do we sometimes end up at that other meaning of finished? Jesus paid it all, but there's a few loose scraps, loose ends for me to wrap up. Jesus went as far as he could when he died, but there are more things to do. It's our turn to provide those last missing pieces, but that is wrong, and it could not be further from the truth. And that's exactly the problem the Galatians had here. See, they were told that faith in Jesus Christ was not enough, that they had to do something to finish the job. And that something was this not-so-easy job of keeping all the laws and rules and regulations of the Jewish law, and Paul wasn't having it. And he wrote this letter to set the Galatians straight. Now, I won't summarize all of it up to this point, but basically, Paul's been telling the story of his life. He, t- he tells how Jesus called him on the way to Damascus, how he, before that he was persecuting the church and suddenly his life turned around and, and then he spent years studying the scriptures and preaching and traveling around. He became a missionary and that's where he met the Galatians, way up in Turkey. And then he came back to his home church in Antioch and found some interlopers, some strangers who were teaching something different than the grace of Jesus Christ. And so he took his case right to the high court, up to the leaders in Jerusalem, the elders of the church. And that's where Paul confronts Peter directly, to his face, publicly. Now, it's not clear if this happened before, if it happened in Antioch, where they first met, or or if it happened later on in Jerusalem when they were in the council. But still, Peter is this right-hand man of Jesus. Peter is the rock on which Christ would build his church. Peter is important in the church. He is fiery and eager and full of the gospel. He's also the one who was quick to deny Jesus when Jesus was arrested the night before he was killed. That side of Peter showed up again here. See, Peter knew the gospel. He knew what Paul preached. He was preaching the same thing. The, the Spirit had revealed it to him just years before when he was on the, a visit in the seaside in Joppa near modern-day Tel Aviv. And uh, the Spirit, it, he got this vision of God telling him, there is nothing unclean. Go with these people who are coming for you and stay with this Gentile, Cornelius, and his family. And so Peter went and he preached the gospel to them and, and he said, now I realize that God does not play favorites. God accepts people from every nation who call on him. And they all receive the spirit and they're baptized and then he goes to the leaders in Jerusalem and tells them what he did and they say, great, wonderful, Gentiles are following God. They would received the spirit. But somehow, by the time Paul got to Antioch years later, he'd forgotten all of that. First, he was eating with the Gentiles, and and there were many Gentiles in the Antioch church. It was one of the most multicultural churches in the early uh, church. But he didn't have a problem with that at first. But then Paul says that these people came down from Jerusalem and Judea, followers of James, and and they were teaching something different. And Peter began to hang back and and not eat with the Gentiles. Those are the facts. That's what happened, says Paul. And, And he declares that Peter stands condemned. See, if he believes the grace of Jesus saves Gentiles, then why pull back? On the other hand, if he thinks that Jewish Christians are right about keeping the law, then why did he eat with Gentiles in the first place? And his two-faced nature reveals itself again. And Paul calls himself, him a, a hypocrite, a phony. And even worse, Peter is one of Jesus' disciples, so people imitate him. He leads other people astray into his two-facedness. 
Even Barnabas, Paul's missionary buddy, his right-hand man. And Paul is furious. It's not hard to see why. He thinks that Peter and these others are not living according to the gospel. And so he, he rips into Peter. He, he preaches this mini-sermon in front of everyone. And the, this sermon goes somewhere from verse 14 all the way through 21, the end of the chapter. Although it's a little hard to tell where it begins and ends because uh, Greek doesn't have quotation marks like English does. But imagine Peter cowering in the corner as he hears Paul lay out his argument. And we don't know how, Paul, how Peter reacted. The Bible doesn't say, uh, was he, he, he hiding in the corner? Was he angry and red-faced and ashamed? We don't know, but uh, humanly speaking, it seems likely that that would happen. No one likes to be caught living a, a contradiction. And Paul says to Peter, you're a Jew, but you live like a Gentile. You don't keep the law yourself anymore. You don't live like a Jew anymore. So why do you want these Gentiles to live like Jews? Now remember, Peter and Paul agree on the gospel. Jesus' grace is enough for everyone, a Gentile and Jew alike, and it all comes by faith in Jesus Christ. And Christ makes us right before God. It's not the works of the law. It's not anything we do. Paul is just repeating what he thinks everyone knows and agrees to already. And we have some clues uh, from later on in Peter's life that hint to how he responded to this sermon. Uh, Peter says in a letter later on that, uh, that Paul's teaching is right, but hard to understand. He, he and Paul seem to have come to some sort of mutual respect and agreement to, to focus on their respective areas, but preach the same gospel. But the problem with Jews not following the law anymore isn't that they suddenly become sinful Gentiles, says Paul. No, those categories, righteous, unrighteous, sinner, Jew, Gentile, they, they don't make sense anymore under Christ. Following Christ Jesus doesn't make people sinful. It makes them aware of their sin. And it makes them more aware of why they need grace. And Paul is right, of course. He's right then and he's still right today. Now, it may not look the same. It may not be about religious rules and rituals and symbols and words. Or maybe sometimes it is. Uh, one pastor says that if you ask the average churchgoer uh, what makes her different than her unbelieving neighbors, what would she say? Uh, would she quote Paul and say something like, nothing at all, nothing makes me different from them but for the grace of Jesus Christ? No, probably not. Probably she'd say something like, well, I, I don't live like those folks. I, I get up and go to church on Sundays uh, I, I, while they sleep in and watch TV. I don't party on weekends like they do and get all loud and, and drunk. Uh, but, but we know that listening to Christian radio doesn't make you a good person or, or, or your bumper stickers on the back of your car, nor your volunteering at the right places or reading the Bible or being a church member all your life. None of those things matter but grace. And we have to receive this gift of grace, but we would rather give a gift of grace to God. We'd rather have something to do with our salvation rather than receive it as this free gift. And the pastor Scott Jose says, this cross remains an offense even to us Christians, even to Christians, because its message is really exactly what Paul said it is. None of that morality does you a single ounce of good. Forget it. Bracket it. Realize that, that you are lost as, as much as your worst neighbor were it not for God's prior grace poured out on the cross. Because if we try to add to what Jesus finished, we deny the cross. And that's why this matters so much to Paul. 
That's why he spent all this time confronting Peter to his face because of the cross. That's why Paul declares in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ and no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. And that, that's Paul's words stripped down to the core of the gospel. It's all Jesus Christ who lives in me. It begins with Jesus' love and grace. And Jesus gives himself for Paul and and for all who God calls to faith. And it's this life of faith, life by faith, life in faith, in faith in the Son of God. Or another way would be to put it, a life by faith of the Son of God. See, what Jesus has done comes first and last. It is finished and completed, and that is grace. Anything else is is wrong. It's missing the point, and Paul is 100% sure of that. And Peter knows it. He knows Paul's right. He knows there's no other possible answer that doesn't involve rejecting Jesus Christ and all his gifts. Martin Luther, in his uh, famous commentary on the book of Galatians, says, Whatever is not of faith is sin. In other words, anything that goes outside or beyond faith in Jesus Christ is sinful. It's wrong. It's trying to earn the grace of Christ Jesus, and it can never be earned but only received with open hands. And Paul emphasizes that point again. He can never set aside the grace of God. Uh, To do the opposite would be unthinkable. To to go back to the law, to try to be made right with God, that would be pointless. Uh, Worse, it would be like saying that Jesus died for nothing. Christ lives in me, says Paul. Christ lives in us, those who follow him, and it is only by grace that we are saved. Uh, Gary Reich told me a, a while back about his pastor in Florida and how he used to open nearly every worship service with these words. He says something like this, it's sin, salvation, service not the other way around. It's sin, salvation, service, not the other way around. In other words, God's grace works like this. God's grace reveals our sin. It, it, it um, sends us, it saves us, and it sends us out into service. And it's not the other way around. It's not sin and then service and then salvation. It, we don't earn our way to heaven by our good works. It is grace alone, and that is straight from the Heidelberg Catechism, by the way. It's what we declare in church every Sunday, and and it's what we should live every day, God's grace. A, A wise woman once said to me, Jesus is enough, and through him we are enough. Jesus is enough, and through him we are enough. Now, Reformed Christians sometimes get accused by other other Christians of of making the faith too easy. People sometimes say something like, well, well, if if it's all God's grace, then I can do whatever I want. Or if I'm saved by grace, then nothing I do matters. Or maybe if it's all God's doing, then why should I preach the gospel to anybody? But they miss the point. Now, here's what the Heidelberg Catechism says in the Lord's Day 33. It asks, What is involved in genuine conversion or repentance? Two things. The dying away of the old self and the rising to life of the new. Well then, what is the dying away of the old self? To be genuinely sorry for sin and more and more to hate and run away from it. And what is the rising to life of the new self? It is wholehearted joy in God through Christ and a love and delight to live according to the will of God by doing every kind of good work. 
Well, then, what are good works? Only those that are done out of true faith, that conform to God's law, that are done for God's glory, and that are not based on our own opinion or human tradition. That's God's grace. And maybe we're sometimes a bit more like Peter than we'd like to admit. You know, occasionally, sometimes, we'd like to have a, a little bit more to do with our salvation. You know, weigh out the, the human side a bit more. But we should let go of, of any confidence that we have in our good deeds and let Christ be all in all. Christ within and around us always and forever. I wonder sometimes what Paul means here by Christ lives in me. And I think it's this idea that I'll probably spend the rest of my life wrapping my head around trying to understand it, trying to live it. Because it's the good news. Because Paul says it in this strange and confusing and even mystical way, Christ lives in me, but that's the grace of God. It's, it's the faith of the Son of God. It's the death to sin and, and, and self and selfishness. And it's rising to new life in Christ because that's all that's left when everything is gone, when everything is finished. I once read a book by a pastor uh, years ago who wrote about pastoring in a small town. Uh, the author's name was Richard Lisher. And he says, uh, uh, tells a story about a, a movie where there's a, a scene where an estranged son comes back home and he finds that his father has died. He didn't get a chance to talk to him before the end. And the son asks desperately to his friend, did he mention me before he died? Did he say my name? And he wants to, he, he hopes for a word that will make things right, that will change the past. And we all want that. We, we want the past to be different. We want that word, that moment that changes everything that came before. And we don't always get it. So we try to buy time. We try to extend our lives to, to keep running in hopes that we might have more time to change the past. Now, some experts out there think that there are people alive today who will live to see 100, 125 years or more. And you wonder, would that extra time make any difference? Well, just, just ask any old person in this church or any older person in your life. They, they might say, there just wasn't enough time. Or, if only I had a little more time, I could fix this regret or reconcile with him or her. Or they might say, I rest in Jesus Christ. And what he's done for me. See, more time won't fix the problem. More years won't save you from your regrets. And we need something else, something more that will save us. And one pastor says, we need Jesus. We need the cross. We need to join him on that cross and just get dead so that God can raise us up again. We look to Jesus' death and we ask that God raise us again. We ask, did Jesus mention me? Did he say my name when it was finished? Yes, he did. And he said that you could stop running. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. It is complete. It is full and whole and done. And that, my friends, dear followers and lovers of Jesus Christ, that, my friends, is grace. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, by your grace poured out for us on the cross, we are saved. And and we try to wrap our hearts and our minds and our lives around that. 
and we fall short of understanding it. And, and so often we try to do something to earn it or deserve it, but we trust and know that we can't and that you have done it all, that you have finished and completed the good work on the cross. So help us to, to recognize your grace, to trust in it, and to, to turn away from anything that is not grace, but trust wholly in what you've done for us, knowing that it is in Jesus Christ that we are healed and saved and forgiven and, and restored to full communion with you. We want to be your kingdom people in the world who, who carry this word out in our lives, who live lives that are completed in Jesus Christ so that we can pour out in joy and love, uh, loving acts of service to our neighbors, to, to your people, to your world. So we pray that you may equip us to do that, that through this grace you've poured out on us, we may pour out into your world. We trust that you are doing that even now in our midst, that you are, by your Spirit, prompting us to, to think of ways we could continually live out your grace in our lives. Help us to recognize it. Help us to do it. Through Jesus Christ, who has paid it all, who has done it all, who says, it is finished. In his name we pray. Amen. As a song of response, I invite you to rise in body or in spirit and sing uh, Psalter hymnal number 290.